Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, we're going to press on to continue with our series on the Gospel of John. And I find the timing of this particular one kind of interesting. Um, It's the famous account of a time when Jesus cleansed the temple. And we're going to draw from John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22. And I want to just walk through that passage with you. After this, the this is the wedding at Cana where he turned water into wine. That was the last message, if you recall. After this miracle and this wedding celebration, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, hit a whip out of cords, and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who stopped turning my father's house into a market. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this temple? And I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It is three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was, then they believed the scripture. And the words that Jesus had spoken. The pictures we carry in our minds of Jesus is someone very meek. That's the primary picture we all carry of Jesus, is the God of open half. In fact, I grew up with, how many of you guys recognize this picture? In the voice of Milton from Office Space saying, I believe you have my stapler. You know, like, just, he looks so meek, so gentle. Um... And that's the picture I grew up with, staring at Jesus. All the paintings of him, one pastor sarcastically, and I I don't really appreciate this, but uh, it was funny at the time, he sarcastically called this picture of Jesus hairdresser Jesus because he had perfect L'Oreal hair. And he looks gentle, but he also looks a little harmless. He looks a little undangerous, maybe someone who is easy to ignore or take advantage of. If that were the telemarketer or the... So it was with some shock when I first, as a high school student, and this is Luca Giordano's painting. A lot of people are quite as aggressive as Mr. Giordano. A Jesus that was losing his cool, his composure, to release our burdens, to receive eternal life. He also gets for us to remember, because we live in a time and in a culture where the worst thing you can be is mean, but sometimes strong stand is absolutely necessary. And we have to remember that while our meanness or our strong stands have to be pursued with incredible caution because we don't really have a lot of authority or right to express anger, we have to remember that God is not just, he has standards. He has very clear what is right and what is wrong. God does have the capacity for anger. In fact, I just bought a book this week that argues 
that it has been inappropriately taught that there is such a thing as Christian righteous anger. Very curious to read this book, because I've actually said that before. There is a time when we have righteous anger. He says, no, the only righteous anger is the anger in God's heart, never in ours. I'll let you know after I read the book what I thought of it, but I have to tell you, we cannot forget that the God we worship is love, but he has opinions, and he has convictions, and he has the capacity for wrath, which we must never whisk away. What's interesting about John's account is he places this cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, whereas Matthew, Mark, and John, what we call the Synoptic Gospels, puts it near the end of his ministry. And scholars have debated this for a while because they said, well, which is it? Is it that Matthew, Mark, and Luke put it properly at the end because the three of them agree, and John just was wrong, or maybe John was one of those guys, he can never remember the sequence of things. Was that, was that at the beginning? So that might be one theory. Another is that John knew it happened at the end of his ministry, but chose to move it to the front to make a point. Or the third is that there were two different occasions when Jesus did this. When he moved through the temple and just ransacked the place in righteous anger. And I have really prayerfully thought through this, read the opinions of much smarter people, and I concluded that the best reading is there were two cleansings of the temple. There's no reason to believe that this only happened once. John's language is so clearly rooted in temporal language that he's not mistaken. He's saying right after Cana he did this. He wasn't saying, I'm just going to throw it in here now for, for a theological point, but it happened right here in this order of things. And if you have children, you know that you don't just correct once and then that's it. Everybody just learns forever. Okay? It's not like you go, oh man, that was pretty harsh. I'll never do that again. How, if, if you're a parent, how many of you have had these words come out of your mouth? Are we really having this conversation again? Or how about this one? Kids, you know, you hear these words. All the, how many times do I have to tell you? And you're like, one more, okay? Just one more. Because the truth is, correction doesn't always stick the first time around. And we have strong reasons why we drift towards what is wrong. Even though we've been told, even though we've been corrected, even though we've been promised consequences, there's a reason why we choose what's easier, what's more comfortable, what's more beneficial for us. And we know it's wrong, we know it's destructive, and yet it's the path of least resistance. It's the path of greatest gain. So we allow the waters of our heart to keep running down familiar channels. And when God tries to divert the river, we go, no, let's go back here. It's easier this way. It's more comfortable. I know how to feel in this pattern of heart. And I don't want to learn a new way. So it's very likely, in fact, I think probable, that Jesus cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry, and a couple years later when he came back and saw that they had just gone right back to their old ways of doing things. Now, I'm going to try not to interact too much with the other three accounts because they are slightly different. I want to try to focus on John's account, but it's not inappropriate for us because the the cleansings were so similar, and I think the heart that drove Jesus to do it was so similar. It wouldn't be inappropriate to bring in a few things from the other three accounts, but I'm going to try to restrict myself to to John's account. Now, I've got to ask this question because as a faithful Jew... Jesus and his family and his disciples all journeyed to Jerusalem right around the Passover. It was an annual pilgrimage for most Jews. 
It was kind of like Thanksgiving in America or Chinese New Year, where it's not just the celebration, but it's also the occasion where most people, whether it's a happy thing or an absolute necessity, they journey and reconnect with their family. Now, some people, they love Thanksgiving. It's the cornucopia in the centerpiece and everyone getting... Other people are like, I got to go see my family. It's Thanksgiving. I got to show up. I'm going to make plans for later that evening so I don't have to stay long and so on and so forth. You get it. But it's a time when people make a trip that's traditional every year. And so Jesus, as a good Jew, traveled to Jerusalem and he wanted to worship in the temple at Passover. But when he got there... He saw and heard and smelled things that set off his temper. And he wasn't just mildly rebuking. He wasn't saying, tisk tisk. What is all this? Guys, come on. He lost his cool. I don't know the last time I lost my cool so much, I was looking around for ropes to make a whip. I, gotta, I can't just yell at you. i got to physically hit somebody, something. Um, but... <laughs> Have you ever felt that kind of anger? Maybe you have, but not righteously. Maybe you just felt it in your heart. But Jesus is not just a little bit annoyed. He's deeply, deeply upset. What was it that got him so mad? I mean, when you see a usually meek Jesus get this upset, you've got to pause and go, what was it? Because I don't ever want to do whatever that was. Smart kids pay attention when their parents are getting upset. And instead of just going, why are you so mad? They go, what is it that I actually did? Because I don't want to go through this ever again. I don't like this one bit. I will learn from my mistakes, and you will never get mad at me for that thing again. Well, these merchants were selling animals. And when you came for the Passover, anytime you worshipped in the temple, there were sacrifices that had to be made. That was part of how people who were sinful connected to God who was holy is that they gave sacrifices. And through the death of the animal, the unrighteousness of sin was atoned for. That's the way temple worship worked. So you couldn't just come empty-handed. But a lot of these people travel from a great distance. Anyone who's ever been on a short-term mission trip knows you're tempted to bring all the conveniences at home, but you're allowed only one bag. You've got to travel light. You can't bring your hair flattener and your hair dryer and your curling iron and all that stuff. You just sort of go, well, I'm on a mission. I'm trying to travel with as little baggage as I can. So when I was in missions back in the day, you could wear a pair of underwear four times, front, back, inside, outside, right? Uh, there's four ways to wear one underwear. It's really disgusting. But that's what it is. So these guys didn't want a journey with a bunch of animals that were going to die anyway when they arrived. And the truth is, if you travel the long distance with animals, there's a very good chance those animals wouldn't make it on that journey, or that as highway robbers saw you pulling a bunch of precious animals, you would invite their attention and you would be robbed. And so, what these guys did was they said, if you just come empty-handed, when you arrive in Jerusalem after your journey, you can buy an animal here. It's a convenience. And it's a real service because they were saying to these people, this will help you, encourage you to make the pilgrimage each year. If, it was, if you had to pull a bull the entire way, you would think twice about ever coming back. So it was a legitimate service they were providing. The money changes were the same thing. Every year, every Jewish male over 20 years old 
had to pay the annual temple tax. And the only currency that the temple would accept was Jewish or Tyrian coinage because it had the highest silver content. It was the best coin. And so in order to pay the temple tax, and it was not just they were greedy, they were saying, if we're going to give God an offering, you give it to him in the best currency available. And so these money changers provided a legitimate service because a lot of these people came from regions where they didn't use Jewish or Tyrian coins. They used a different currency. And so if you wanted to give the temple tax, you had to convert your money into the right currency. And that's what they did. So if you look at these two groups that Jesus is angry with, the merchants selling animals and the money changers, why was he so mad when they were providing a legitimate service? What got him upset enough to get physical? Well, the first thing we'll observe is that they were interfering with the actual practice of worship. It is true that carrying an animal all the way from your home village is inconvenient and maybe even dangerous. And so, yes, they were providing a great service but they could just as easily have set up shop in a designated district on the outskirts of town, maybe near the gates where people were coming in, and left the temple courts as a respectful, solemn place for worship to happen. But they didn't do that. And if you've ever traveled around the world to a tourist attraction, you'll always see at every major place, wherever people gather and pay money to go in, you'll see a bunch of merchants hawking their wares, all around the roads in the area leading up to that tourist attraction, but the most coveted positions are the ones inside the attraction itself. If you get a berth inside of the actual attraction, you're going to make some serious money because that's where the people are most willing. They're awed. Wow, I want to take a piece of this home, and they will spend the most money. Plus, they're thinking, let's just get it now. I don't want to go find some guy outside. And so it worked the same way. They really wanted to get a competitive advantage over others. And the best spots came to those who were able to sell these things and conduct their business directly on the temple courts. And the whole point of doing that was, it was was good business. They were trying to minimize inconvenience and maximize profit. Isn't that what drives all business innovation today? Let's find a problem that makes life hard for people, figure out a way to fix it to make it easier, and make sure we make a ton of money doing it. It's what drives the marketplace. But here's the truth. I don't believe worship is supposed to be convenient and efficient. And that's part of what Jesus was upset about, was that the driving impulse for all of this arrangement was that, wow, it's so convenient and so efficient, but should those things really be the driving factors behind worship of God? I think we all know that's not right, it's one of the reasons why when someone re-gifts a Christmas present to you, it doesn't feel that great, does it? Hey, here's something that didn't cost me anything. Someone gave it to me, and I don't even want to keep it. Here, you have it. Hey, thanks so much for literally next to nothing. I, it feels very much when it's re-gifted that it's a statement about where you stand in that person's heart. I remember my mom bought me a sweater when I was in high school, and it was a, a polo sweater. It was a certain, I don't know how to describe the color. It was um, puce green, maybe? But it was an unusual color, and she, she gave it to me. I was like, oh, thanks. She goes, don't you like the color? I'm like, yeah, it's, it's nice. 
unusual, that's the best word I get. I've never seen a sweater that color. And she said, yes, I had it in my mind that I thought that color would look great on you. And I searched six different malls. I walked from every store to every store in all six malls looking, and I finally found the sweater of that color. I said, Mom, thank you, but you don't have to go to all that trouble. You could have just walked. And she goes, no, you don't understand. My gift to you is not the sweater. My gift to you is the effort that went into finding just the right one. That journey and the inconvenience was the gift because I really care about you. And whether you like the sweater or not, I needed to do something that wasn't just out of my wealth, buying you something nice and going, here, have it. And she realized it had been a long time since she was able to care for me in that maternal way. When we were little, she took care of everything. She wiped us, she fed us, she clothed us, but we were teenagers, we're now adults, we don't need her for anything. And she realized it had been so long since she sacrificially loved and served me. And she chose to do that in the form of a Christmas gift. I think that's why it is a little bit off-putting when you find out, oh, someone gave it to you, you didn't want to keep it, so you just handed, boomeranged it right to me. I see how, who we are to each other. Now, I'm not suggesting every incident of regifting is an insult or a brush-off, but it feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? When you know that the thing a person gave you required nearly zero effort or thought or cost, it doesn't feel as much like a real gift. It just feels like a transfer of goods. To those who sold doves, Jesus said, get these things out of here. And I think what he's saying is, when you walk into the foyer of a church, you're not expecting to hear the sounds of commerce going on. I don't know if you've ever been to a third world marketplace. Uh, I find them terribly exciting in the best possible way. I love going to the open air markets in developing countries. The chaos, the noise, the smell, just all of it, I love. It's so stimulating and exciting for me. I could spend the whole day in those markets getting jostled and haggling with people. I really enjoy it. But I wouldn't say that that atmosphere is conducive to quiet reflection and communion with God. In fact, it's exciting because it's distracting and engaging in such a direct horizontal way, me and these other people. I feel the press of humanity all around me. Jesus walks into the temple courts yearning to worship his father, to prepare his heart to connect with God. And instead, what he hears and sees and smells is the atmosphere of a marketplace, a thousand conversations happening loudly, merchants negotiating with clients, He hears, and if you've ever been to a petting zoo or a farm or whatever, he smells, smells of animals. They're sweat, they're scent, they're dung. It's loud in there. It's chaotic. And anyone who really needed to or wanted to sit quietly with God, connect with him, it would have been nearly impossible for him to do that in that atmosphere. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts of the cleansing of the temple, they, quote, they have Jesus quoting Isaiah 56, verse 7. And he says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. I don't want to unpack that too deeply, but what he's saying is that the point of the temple was that it's supposed to be an earthly place 
where human beings connect with God. The whole purpose of the temple was that it would be a place on earth where sinful man and holy God could meet and we could commune with one another and we could connect with him in the deepest possible way. And it was supposed to be a place of reverence because that is a solemn occasion when sinful man and holy God meet together. It's meant to be solemn. There can be laughter, there can be joy, but it's always supposed to be a serious thing when we connect with God. And and what Jesus was saying is all the structures and systems and services designed to help us do this worship are actually getting in the way of worship. I'm reminded of Saul trying to give little David his suit of armor. Saul was like six foot whatever, okay? Just a tall dude. And David was probably my height. And it just looked ridiculous when he put on the armor. And he said, this stuff that's supposed to protect me is going to get me killed. I can't move in this. The very thing you've given me to help is going to end up costing me my life. And sometimes that's what happens in life. The very things that are supposed to help actually get in the way. Think about how a man, a young man might get in his head that to be truly loving to a woman, you have to buy her nice things and plan nice outings and really impress her and surprise her all the time. So he sets off on a life quest of upping himself outdoing himself constantly. Oh, I got a better idea for this year's vacation. I'm going to outdo... You know, you start with the whole proposal. You set up this elaborate thing, and she's like, oh, that was nice. What have you done for me lately? So he keeps learning. You got to keep out-impressing yourself. Today, you has to be way better than yesterday, you, right? And he keeps getting in his head that that's how you love a woman, is you buy her things, you treat her well, you take her on adventures. So he keeps doing it and finds that they're drifting further and further apart. The very thing he thought was how you build a relationship is actually killing the relationship because it's getting in the way of real love. They're not even talking to each other. They're just trying to outdo last year's adventure. They've built a relationship on experiences and expenses, and they have had no real encounter with one another in so long. They've become strangers to each other. This happens all the time. Sometimes parents get in their heads that my whole job is to give my kid every advantage in life and set them up for success. That's nice if you help your kids get ahead. It's nice if you make sure they do their homework and wash themselves and don't get diseases like scurvy. But if you really think that your main job is to set your kids up for success and give them every advantage, you're going to lose that child. If you believe that's what is asked of you, then in the process of being a good parent, you will become a terrible parent because that child whom you have set up for success will not know your name, will not trust your heart, will only know that you have told them that succeeding is all that matters in life and they don't know that where they stand with you heart to heart. They don't know that your heart is a safe place forever. If you get the wrong idea in your head, then as you bring about all these structures and systems to help, you can completely lose the central picture of what is needed. In the late 1990s, Pastor Matt Redman, some of you may reckon, I I had no idea this is what he looked like when I heard his voice. I don't know why. Sometimes that happens. I just hear a voice and I picture a face. I don't know why. I picture a face and then I see, well, not at all the face I imagined, but... um, 
Pastor Matt Redmond, he was serving in the late 1990s as the praise pastor, the worship pastor at Soul Survivor Church in Watford, England. And they were making a huge impact on the Christian music scene. They had one of the most amazing bands. They were writing the songs that other churches were singing. Everything was firing on all cylinders, and yet he felt this growing emptiness in the worship at their church. It was being done with excellence that others were imitating. He was becoming a celebrity, not just in the UK, but across the world. And yet he looked at his church and said, why does it feel so completely unworshipful in our own church? People say, my gosh, if I could go to Matt Redmond's church, I would be floating on air. and my, I would cry during worship every Sunday. And he said, well, I'm here and no one's crying at worship on any Sunday. What's missing? And he realized that it was the very excellence of everything they did that clouded their vision of the God who simply wanted to be worshipped. Now, he went back to having everything. We're not making a statement against excellence, against hard work, against practice. But those things, if they become an end unto themselves, can so easily get in the way of the very thing they're designed to help us do. So Pastor Redman did an interesting thing. He abolished everything, and for a season, there were no instruments, no microphones. It was just him on a stage leading the church in a cappella, praise of God, and worship started to rise in that church. In fact, that simple decision introduced a new season of revival in their church that really touched everyone's hearts. And that familiar song, Heart of Worship, I'm going back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you. That song was written to commemorate what God did, what they learned as a church during that season. Sometimes the practice of worship gets in the way of the heart of worship. And if you're finding that that's happening to you, make sure that you think about how you prepare your own heart each time you come before God. I'll talk a little bit more about practical responses at the end of the message. Let me move to a second thing that explains why Jesus was so upset. Because he realized that what this signal, what this sound and smell and sight signaled was that the motives of the marketplace had crept into the church, into the house of God, a place for worship. The motives of the marketplace had taken over. See, these merchants weren't there to provide an assistance for worship out of the goodness of their hearts. This wasn't a ministry. It was a business. Yes, it actually helped people. Yes, you could argue we were providing an essential service for the worship of God according to the ways God said he wants to be worshipped. And yet that wasn't what was driving them. And that was the problem. It wasn't the net effect of what they were providing, but the motive that drove them to provide it was that for them, the courtyards of God's house of worship had become a place of business, a marketplace where they were driven to go each day to maximize profits and move merchandise. Now, I'm not just throwing stones in the dark. Jesus' reaction reveals that that was in their hearts. That's why he called it a market. He knew what the purpose was, the stated ostensible purpose of all these animals, of all the money changing He understood what they were for. His problem was not that the service was in some way being offered. 
But the heart and the motive that drove it and the place where they set up shop deeply grieved and offended his heart. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he further, after saying, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, he immediately turns around and says, and you have made it a den of thieves. What does that mean, a den of thieves? It's, it's like a cantina where every patron, it's like a bar, right? One of those dark dive bars where every person in there has a criminal record. Everybody's looking at how to get an angle on each other. Everybody's corrupt. Everybody's hands are dirty. He's saying, that's what this place feels like. Because, yes, it was easy to sell the animals. But, you know, the kind of animals you get outside the temple? You've, you've, you've seen this, right? Where you go to a tourist attraction somewhere overseas, and the guys selling the stuff outside the attraction are selling it much cheaper. But you pick it up, and you're like, wow, that's going to break on the flight home. And then you realize there's the, the vendors inside the attraction are a cut above. They're dressed a little snazzier, a little more English capability, and their wares are a little sturdier, a little higher quality, but they cost a little bit more. And that's just the way it works. When you're already inside the temple, you don't have a lot of choices. These are your vendors. You're going to buy from them. And they knew this, and they would bring the finest animals and upcharge you because you're already here don't you want to give God the very best? I know this, um, this Lexus goat is a little more than you can afford. I, I know that this ox, um, it's a Bentley ox, but hey, doesn't God deserve? And you're like, I really shouldn't, but here's my credit tablet and uh, <laughs> take a chip off. I don't know what they did. But that's the idea. So I've already got you. I'm going to take you for a ride. And you have no choice. You're going you're gonna to get what I'm selling. And in order to get these coveted spots inside the temple, you needed permission. You couldn't just barge your way in. Someone had to authorize you to license your booth, your stand. And the people who did that were the temple leaders. And they didn't just give it willy-nilly. You got to grease the skids a little bit. My palm's awfully dry. It might need a little lubrication for me to sign this waiver for you to practice here. And the whole system, it no longer felt like a house of worship. It felt like a branded commodity. It felt like a place that was more a business than house of worship. I think there's a lot of good things we can learn from the world of business. A portion of what I read every year comes from the secular leadership world. And there are things that are really good to learn from the world outside the church. If a pastor never reads from outside the church, he will become very narrow. But here's the important thing to remember. The motives that drive the marketplace are not the same motives that drive the church. The motives that make the marketplace move forward are actually antithetical to so much of what makes church something pleasing to God. In the marketplace, the primary drivers of activity are the pursuit of more profit, expansion so that your reach, your market share, your influence increase all the time. It's either you're growing or you're dying because that's just the way it is in the marketplace. And you measure your success relative to your competition. 
There is no internal sense of success other than your personal satisfaction that I like my job. But aside from that, success in the marketplace is always driven by how you compare to everybody else. Those are motives that are fine for the marketplace. They keep commerce running every day. It's why every day you can expect that cars get cooler, not uglier, not dumber. That's why the iPhone 25 is going to be awesome compared to the iPhone 3. You're not going to want to go, well, hey, this is the same thing we had 20 years ago. That kind of motivation drives innovation, and we count on that in the marketplace. And we falsely assume that surely that works here too, that that's a good thing for us to imitate. Bigger is better. More is better. New is better. Different is better. Innovation matters for everything. But you know what? I think our primary job is not to innovate or create or change so much as to preserve an undying truth. A beautiful message, an invitation that is a gift for us to steward and give freely. The goal of preaching, for example, is to help the people of God and new people remember what is true My job here is not to be clever and come up with something no one's ever heard of before. If I come up with something no one's ever said before, 99.9% chance I'm wrong. Do you you know how little the likelihood is that I'm the smartest Christian who ever stepped up to a pulpit? And I've come up with something nobody else thought of. Like, yeah, this is definitely this is true. I alone say this. If I ever claim that, go to another church. (laughs) Run for the hills. Our job is primarily to preserve and steward an unchanging message about an unchanging God who says to sinners, come. You will find welcome here. You will find redemption here. We live in an age of celebrity pastors, branded churches, ministries so large they're too big to fail. They reach so many people, surely we can't upset this cart. The motives that drive the marketplace have not just crept into the church, they have started to define the church. And my point today, in spite of recent news, is not to point the light at one church. It is to point the light at our church. And say that we have to be on our toes, on our guard, praying humbly that the things that drive the marketplace will never touch us here. The way we treat each other, the way we measure performance, success, all of it. And it's hard to say that without suggesting that we're going to have no standards, that anything goes. That's not what we're saying at all. But even when we fail each other, Even when we're frustrated, the way we go about it has to be different here than in the cold, harsh marketplace. The things that we call succeeding can't be the same things that a marketplace leader would come and say, your church is awesome. People who know nothing about God should not have well-defined opinions about the church. They're built on different platforms. I was just thinking how it's like somebody who is a lifetime trained bowler who's trying to learn golf, and he keeps having to remind himself, high score is not a good thing. High score is not a good thing. 
When I was learning golf, I was a trained tennis player. And baseball players are the same thing. Tennis, golf coaches always have to tell tennis players and baseball players, it's not about swinging away as hard as you can. It's letting the form and the club do the work. And I was terrible at it. I kept going, I'm going to, and my form, if you ever golf with me, you got to kind of close your eyes when I swing because otherwise you get discouraged. I actually ruin your game, okay? And I have to keep reminding myself the same rules don't apply here. This is a completely different game. And there are some things I can bring in from tennis, implement, ball, connect them. You know, that's, I can borrow that. But that's where the similarities end. It's a whole different thing. And it's got to be pursued a whole different way. Now, there's money changing hands in a church. Not everything is free. We have to get degrees and certifications and licenses. There are certain accoutrements of the business world that might find parallels in the church world. But the motives that drive the heart of business, the marketplace, should never find their way into the church. That's not what we're about. A thousand years before Jesus cleansed the temple, a king named Solomon gathered all of Israel from all the reaches of the country, and they gathered around a newly constructed temple. This temple had taken seven years and 150,000 laborers to complete at a cost of around $250 billion just for the building materials. And when they were finished, they were dedicating this as unto the Lord. And if you recall from a previous sermon, Solomon in that moment gets up in front of Israel, and they're in a hushed place, and he says, Now arise, O Lord, and come and occupy the house we have built for you. And no sooner does he say amen than fire rains down from the sky. It consumes all the animals piled up on the altar, and then the glory, the heavy presence of God, moves into the temple, so filling it that the priests could not even enter. And just at the same moment, without any cue, every person in the place fell on their faces in total worship. No one had to tell them this is now the time when we fall on our faces. They fell because God was in the place, and they knew that this physical structure, this facility has no other purpose. It finds no other value in this world except to be a place where we sinful people are not ejected from the presence of God. He accepts us here. We commune with him here. God is pleased to dwell with us in this place. What a far cry a thousand years later for the Son of God, God himself, a man, to walk into his own house and see a marketplace And not that same reverent posture of worship. So when the Jewish leaders accosted him and said, what gives you the right to do all this? By what authority? They didn't see the irony of the question itself. By the authority of the man whose house this is. The master of this house is not okay with what you're doing here. That's by whose authority? And he said to them in a cryptic way, you can destroy this temple and I will raise it up again. You see, the temple was a place where sinful man can stand before holy God and not be consumed in judgment and wrath. 
And what he said is, we will not need buildings for this anymore. In fact, so many of the accoutrements of worship are getting in the way of worship. When I die and I'm raised again, I will provide a new way for people to worship God, to connect with Him, to be directly with Him. And even though we persist in the structures of religion, we now can fully have the heart of worship because of what Jesus is about to do. The temple served its purpose physically, but soon his own body, broken and raised again, would be the temple by which we would come to meet with God. So Jesus, at first blush, might seem to be overreacting. But really, if God has any business at all, if Jesus is concerned about anything at all, shouldn't the worship of God be front and center in his mind? He's not overreacting. He's telling us that the church is not a private playground. It is not a canvas on which to build our own identity and validation, our own reputation and legacy. It is the house of God. It always must be the house of God. It must be a place where people in every condition and from every background can come together and connect to God who invites them to find new life. So let me give you a few closing practical things that we can have in our hearts as we respond to what we've heard. The first is to give God costly worship. You know, I think convenience and efficiency are such drivers today of everything. Listen to, you know, have you ever seen those videos on YouTube called First World Problems? this app is so slow, you know. I was sending texts and emails from an airplane over the Atlantic Ocean not too long ago, and I was upset that the internet on this airplane was so slow. And I was like, do you realize what a complete miracle it is I was even doing it? We want everything faster and easier. We think that's better. But certain things become better when they're harder, when they're more costly. I won't divulge the name, but I was really blessed recently when a mother of a young baby shared with me and another group of people. It's really hard when you have a young baby to hold your spiritual life together. So she made a commitment to wake up an hour before her baby woke up. That means like 5 a.m., I don't know about you, but there's, if you think that's a good thing, an easy thing, you're so abnormal. That's, that's a hard thing. And there was something so beautiful to me in that commitment. Because I see somebody fighting hard against the grain to give God her best when it's not easy. And I remember feeling very challenged in that moment to consider how often do I do that for him? How often am I willing to be inconvenienced, stretched, pulled to places I don't really want to go because it's not fun, it's not my scene, it's not my thing, and yet I grow when I go to those places. And God is honored when the gifts we give him, the worship we bring to him, was not an issue of convenience and ease, but it took me some effort and it cost me something to say these things and do these things for you, God. 
Here's the second thing we can do is to give God intentional worship. I didn't know a better way to say this, but maybe if I could unpack it, it's this. We provide lots of things that do make worshiping God a little more convenient. That's great. I mean, if you ever heard, you know, if, if I were the praise leader of this church, Pastor Frank recently said the same thing, people would go to another church, right, if we're the ones leading the singing. Thank God for our praise team. But I pray that Sunday mornings for four songs are not the only time you are singing to your Savior. Learn some songs. Stumble through it. Even if you can't play an instrument, God gave you one in your throat. Even if singing is not your thing, it's one of the ways that God unlocks a deep emotional place of worship. And maybe your thing is not singing, but stretch a little. Don't just trust our praising to make it easier and enable it. Let them catalyze the private practice of worshiping God through song. Even if you only learn one song every year and your family's like, can you find another song? Sorry, it's the only one I know, but I'm going to sing it. You know, we've enabled online giving at our church, electronic giving. Because a lot of people said, man, we're trying to chase after little kids in the morning. I, I thought my wife was going to write the check, and then she thought I was going to write the check. And, you know, so we said, okay, in order to help you honor your commitments, we're going to set up online giving. But here's the wrong way to use online giving. The wrong way is to set it up like a set it and forget it system. And you say, all right, God has become another utility bill that I just pay every month. If that's the way you're using it, you're doing it wrong because somehow the the convenience that helps you honor your commitments are squashing a very important moment in your week where you say to God, everything I have is yours. I devote myself to you and every penny I own, not just 10%, but every penny belongs to you. When I used to write physical checks in the days before online giving and chase quick pay, It was a whole thing for me in the mornings. I would write it and I would put my hand on that check physically. I would anoint that check. It was so weird, but I'd be like, Lord, this money, let it be used thoughtfully, prayerfully, carefully. Let it do something good for your name to make you famous. I would bless that check as a piece of stupid blue paper. But it was my occasion each week to remember that this is money that God owns. It doesn't own me and I don't own it. In other words, when something makes worship easier, don't coast in the easiness. But let it catalyze an aggressive, intentional act of worship from your heart. Let me give you one last thing. Pray regularly for harvest. There's nothing about our church inherently better or safer than any other church. We are one sinful impulse away from ruination. Throughout the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, we're reminded that Jesus doesn't tell churches that they have an inalienable right to keep existing no matter what they do. There comes a moment when they dishonor him sufficiently and he says to them, I am removing my lampstand from you. You once served my glory. You once gave me honor. You once helped connect people to the Father, but no longer. You've become something else. I don't know what it is you've become, but you are not what you're meant to be. And it's right when the judgment of God upon a wayward church 
is to say, I will rescue the people of God from wayward places and bring them back to God the Father, even if it's through the way of pain. We're not immune to that. And I'm going to ask you, if you've ever had angst and heartbreak over all the stories that litter our newspapers of churches that are falling apart and leaders that are failing, pray for us. We say that song, I need you now. I got to tell you, we, the leaders of Harvest, very keenly feel the need for your prayers in this season. We need them more than we ever have in our 23-year history. We're facing challenges and we're bearing burdens unlike anything we've ever had before. We need you to pray for our church all the time. I cannot stress that enough. If you're blessed to have found this faith community, pray every day that we would not lose our way. Because the ways of the world are very seductive. They're so tempting. It's not any less so for the church. Would you pray especially for the leaders of this church that we would be men and women who love and honor Jesus above every other motive in this world. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.